Anyways, guards, I just want to say, every fucking time a new podcast comes out, I'm not kidding you, I fucking lock all myself down, I turn my phone off, I shut all my blinds, I do a big whack of down, and I just fucking put it on. <laughs> I do. It, That's it's the just best me. testament we could ever have. <laughs> it is. <laughs> fucking Dino goes on a fucking nice, and they're getting longer, which is better. I just sit back. I fucking love it. Hey, who plays the guitar? Who does all the speech? I knew, I knew that was you. I do. I do. Like when the guitar sounds really like, yeah. that's me. Yeah. And when it sounds a little, a little nicer, a little more talented, that's Sam. Okay. So I don't have the, uh, I don't have the fine, uh, special no, jazz I, chords or I anything. Knew, I knew you were, uh, I knew you were the crunch dog. <laughs> I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 11, the year that nothing happened. How are you doing, buddy? Oh, good. I'm standing by the wrong door, Dean. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm outside of Dean Wilson's place. Dean's a heroin user, an activist, and a member of Crackdown's editorial board. One of our producers recently called Dean. She wanted to chat about 2019 to see if he had anything we could use for our year-end episode. And Dean says his wheels have been spinning ever since. Just, she asked me about this year, and it's got to be the most disappointing year I've ever spent in harm reduction. To tell you honestly, we've achieved absolutely fucking nothing. Absolutely nothing. I'm incredibly depressed, though. Yeah. Yeah. Tell him honestly. Yeah, I'm just. I just got this running now. Yeah, since that's you were fine. That's jumping fine. Jumping right into yeah, it. Yeah. Well, this is, this is. We kind of decided this would be the, the maybe the point of this episode is um, is to make that kind of statement. You know. Okay. Uh, I'm in. Yeah. Put your bag right there. If you Thanks. Wish. Uh, will do. Okay. And do you want a coffee, young man? Oh, I I wouldn't say no. Thank okay. You. And Cheers. Now, you mind if I turn off the telly here? Uh, I'll kill it right now. Oh, all right. Yeah, no problem. If this is the worst year Dean can remember, that's really saying something. He's been around forever. Dean started doing heroin when he was 12, and he says it's the first time he ever remembers feeling normal. And by the 90s, Dean was a fixture on the downtown east side. And, um, I feel that for many years I was part of being the, those, you know, I, I was a bad drug dealer who, who preyed on people, especially if you owed me money and shit. And so I've come full circle too. I've realized that 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 side of the fence I was on in the drug thing it was not good. I was Today, Dean is best known for his activism. He cut his teeth during the city's first crisis in the 90s, when fatal overdose, HIV, and Hep C rates all spiked. Dean has testified at a parliamentary standing committee where he told conservative MPs that Jesus Christ would support safe consumption sites if he were alive today. He and Van Du planted a thousand crosses at Oppenheimer Park to make people pay attention to the ODs. And he says he was the first person to shoot up at Insight. Dean Wilson, elder statesman of the movement. Of the movement, and that's sort of like... Put that on your business card. Yeah. I really just think this year, professionally, the worst year I've ever fucking spent. We achieved literally nothing. I mean, it's like we're acclimated to the acclimated to the fact that people are going to die all the time. This this is the way it is. This is now the new status quo. That's bullshit. They're preventable deaths. I feel like myself kind of acclimatizing almost. You know, I, I know, and so do I. You know, I've 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 learned that you know that there's sometimes no heroin around, so I have to use fentanyl, but I've learned how to use it. Please. So you, you look down in your cooker and you see orange uh, pebbles uh, boiling up and you're like, this is me accommodating the crisis. Exactly, exactly. This is the way it is. This is the new normal. I don't think that's acceptable. You've been doing this for 20 years? No, longer than that, 25 years, right? Yeah, 22 maybe. 22 yeah. years. And you haven't seen a year like this? Never, never. 2019 will be known to me as the year that nothing happened. The year that nothing happened. Dean's right. We haven't had a big win in a while. And 2019 does seem like a bit of a depressing blur. One politician proposed decriminalization. Another shot it down. Activists campaigned for safe supply. 
but nothing came from it. A national election came and went, and our nearly 14,000 dead was barely a footnote. All of this is starting to feel permanent. But in this bleak midwinter of the crisis, I need to hear something good. Maybe you do too. And so for Crackdown, for the movement, and for me, I want to push back against this depressing blur. I want to go to the places where we have a little agency, and I want to put a mic up to them. So our producers and I set out to find four moments from the past year, four days where we survived, where we fought back, and maybe these stories can tell us something about where we are now and what we need to do in 2020. Chapter 1, Sunday, June 23rd. The rate of fatal overdoses is finally starting to fall in BC, maybe even down a third from last year. And that's good, but it's not because the government has done anything exceptional. It's certainly not because the drug supply is any safer. People are still overdosing at least as much as ever around here, but we're getting better at keeping them alive. We've become a community of first responders. We carry Narcan, we stay ready, and we intervene when our friends and family stop breathing. Much of this work is done by people who've used drugs. Yeah, it's not really raining that much. Lovely day if you're a duck. Yeah. <laughs> Fine West Coast weather. My name's Che, I am the manager at Overdose Prevention Society, located at 58 East Hastings. Crackdown producer Alex DeBoer met Trey Helton behind the OPS near Hastings in Columbia. Trey's a pretty creative guy, an actor, a musician, and a visual artist. He points out a mural on the wall and he says, I painted that. So this is Daffy Duck, uh, and he's hammered. Probably got hammered down at the West Pub at the end of the alleyway. And uh, now he's looking for some quack, because he's a duck. I get it. <laughs> Um, could you tell me where you're from? I'm from here. I grew up in Richmond, British Columbia. I went to Jane Burnett High School. Go Breakers, go. <laughs> and uh, came over to East Van pretty quick as soon as I dropped out. I dropped out of high school and I've been here ever since. After dropping out, Trey would meet up with friends and play bingo at the Pacific Pub, where they had $2 pints. Trey was also playing in bands, the Neo Nasties, the Young Offenders, and the fuck you pigs. A lot of the people Trey is close to, his friends, his bandmates, his family, they do drugs. It's a huge part of his world. The first time Trey shoots heroin, it was with his brother. And it just worked for him. I'm okay with being called an addict. Some people don't like it. Uh, I love drugs. Drugs love me. And uh, I, like, I like to drive fast. I drive a red car instead of a blue car. And um, if it feels good, I'll probably uh, abuse it. <laughs> and if one of them feels good, I'll use like 10 of them. And that's just me, right? I stayed at the old New Fountain, the old New Fountain shelter underneath the Stanley Hotel, and there was a very coveted position of uh, janitorial work, and uh, you could do dope there all night long. And the next morning, uh, if you got, uh, if you were lucky enough, you could grind, grind staff to to ask if you could uh, get the clean, the very coveted uh, cleaning position, uh, bleaching the floors and everything for like 15 bucks. Uh, and you know, like I would, like I was desperate to get on that uh, that schedule list to do that because, like, I would have rather done that and like earned my money than having to go out and break into cars. But like everyone fought for that one position, like it was constantly a scrap. And so, when he couldn't get the janitor gig, Trey would steal shit to avoid dope sickness. And this kind of thing got him locked up. He's also had near misses, times when he overdosed and barely scraped through. And that's why he decided to kick. First he tried Suboxone and then just weed. Uh, it really like helped a lot, like with taking the edge off. 
and then I started going to a 12-step fellowship. I'm not like advertising for them. I'm just telling like my my story. Like I'm not trying to give them promo or anything. So I going to Narcotics Anonymous, and I was like, yeah, I'm smoking weed and uh, drinking, and they're like, that's fine. You can still be here. This is a program of complete abstinence, though. Like, but keep coming here. You're, you're welcome to be here, right? So Trey takes her advice. He gives up weed and booze. The weed was making him paranoid and eat too much anyway. But N.A. had another request, something that Trey found a lot harder. Stop hanging out with people who use drugs. At first, I submitted to everything that Narcotics Anonymous told me to do. I did everything they said. Uh, I stayed away from people who were using. I stayed away from uh, uh, places where people used. I got new friends. I got a support network. I got a, a, a private men's group that I formulated. Eventually, like after I got a year clean, I was like, man, like this whole recovery thing, like it's good and stuff, but like I don't want to live in fear anymore. Like drugs are everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. Like I want to go to punk rock shows. I want to like, I don't care if my friends are using, like I understand, like I'm not going to like live my life running from everything. In February 2018, the overdose crisis is raging on. Trey's working as an actor, but it's not quite paying the bills. Back when he used heroin, he used to go to Insight a lot. And Trey says it looked like a cool place to work, partly because the staff had tattoos and wore band shirts or whatever. They didn't have to look all corporate. And so Trey decides to work at the Vancouver Overdose Prevention Society at 58 East Hastings. Pretty much anyone who's used drugs can get the job. But the pay isn't great. $10 an hour. Um, so you can work a five-hour shift and get 50 bucks the next day. It's basically the highest living wage we can go without it being declared uh, livable assets. It's not very much, but it's meant to be that way so that um, you don't have to declare it on welfare or disability, and it's, it's a safe hustle. It's better than stealing bicycles, going through dumpsters, stealing electrical wire from a house, copper wire from a house. It's just an alternative. It's a safe alternative. So Trey gets to work. The most important part of the job is keeping an eye on people. If they start to nod, he looks closer. Have they stopped breathing? Are they turning blue? Like lots of people in the life, Trey is good at this. Researchers, including Crackdown science advisor Ryan McNeil, have evaluated these kind of places. And they've found that peers, that's us, are better at connecting with drug users than healthcare professionals are. Drug user run sites are especially useful if you're a woman, if you have a disability, if you have trouble injecting, or if you use stimulants. Last year, a team of researchers led by Mary Claire Kennedy surveyed 72 OPS workers who use drugs. Some of those workers told them that these kind of jobs provide, quote, more meaningful and rewarding workforce inclusion than what's typically available. Although some noted they're still paid a lot less than non-drug users who do the exact same work. But for Trey, this entry-level position was a stepping stone to become site manager, which meant he'd be getting paid a living wage. Uh, I'm only supposed to be here um, four days a week, but it's a lot more than that. Um, and it doesn't feel like I'm really blessed because this job doesn't feel like a job to me. Um, like we are in an overdose crisis and the primary purpose here is to make sure that we prevent people from dying uh, using toxic illicit street drugs. But if my job really feels like I'm just hanging out with my friends all day. So yeah, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to have this job. I love my job. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, yeah. it must take a lot of willpower to work at the OPS and like be around people using drugs all the time, though. Like, do you ever find it challenging or do you feel tempted? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, especially when I watch like uh, like my friends or family members shoot dope. Like, fuck, yeah. Oh, yeah. I watch I, for, like I can watch anyone else shoot dope. But when it's like someone I care about and I watch like the needle flag, I'm like, fuck. Oh, my God, I want to get high. But it's been so long now that, like, I know it's not, it's not a healthy option for me anymore, right? Like, it's only a moment. Reversing overdoses is emotionally grueling work, especially for people who've used drugs. Because you're not working with strangers. Often, you know the person. And Trey's been there. It was June 23rd, 2019. Right here. Right here. <laughs> right where we're standing in the alleyway. Um, it was in the summertime while we were doing this uh, Time Flies Chasing Dragons mural. And I had the projector out. Um, I had to stand out here 
watching the projector and all the gears so that it didn't get stolen. And it was like totally random. Like it was almost like serendipitous. So I don't use that word very much, but it was totally random at like 3.30 a.m. in the morning. And I recognized him right away, like his stance, the way that he was uh, just down, just down a little over there where the Bugs Bunny graffiti is. And I saw his silhouette and I was like, that's my brother. The way that he's like moving around and then all of a sudden he just went, bam, flopping around like a fish and he OD'd uh, right in front of me. And I ran over there with, with uh, naloxone kit and assisted, right? Were you working or you just happened to be I was out? just happened to be here. Like I would never really be in this alleyway at, at 3 a.m. But uh, when he OD'd, I was so mad at him and I walked over to him and I actually took a picture of him. I took a picture of him while he was OD'd in the ground. So when I resuscitated him, I could be like, look at you, look at you, what a fucking asshole you are. This is what I had to do because you died in front of me. I don't know what I was thinking. You just go through crazy things when you're like uh, dealing like emotionally stressed out or pissed off, right? Trey says this kind of work can get to you. It makes it harder to stay away from drugs, and he knows that's a risk. But the way he sees it, it's not supposed to be easy, because what he's doing, and what we're all doing, is fighting a war. The Canadian government, uh, you know, like they don't want to use the term frontline worker anymore because it's you know stigmatizes that we're in a drug war. Uh, they don't want to say combating the opiate crisis. Um, but it is like a war. Like no matter how you want to dress it up, like. Uh, I am aware that I'm just I'm desensitized like I'm quite desensitized to a lot of things like I, I talk about uh, my day at work to like some of my friends uh, and they're just like shocked like it's like their jaw is dropped and they're like how do you do that you just got to keep moving forward pick yourself up get to the next person help them and then and then address later if need be Nothing about this crisis is sustainable. Nothing about it should feel normal or okay. The people who work in overdose prevention are burnt out and underpaid. We gotta fix that. Workers need real support for dealing with all this heavy shit. But they also need decent pay, benefits, vacation time, and the rest. The jobs need to be unionized. And we can't stop there, because Narcan is an intervention in what could be the last couple of heartbeats of someone's life. We need to stop the ODs from happening in the first place. We need something bold and new. That great leap forward like the safe injection site was 20 years ago. We need safe supply. Tell me, tell me about batteries while I check the <laughs> Batteries, mm. we need good ones. You need lithium ion ones. I need a car battery to hook up to this thing with some jumper cables or something, eh? Chapter two, Monday, November the 4th. That's your phone going there, eh? I'm standing near a stairwell on the downtown east side with one of my oldest friends, Jeff Loudon. 25 years ago, Jeff lived in the rooming house across from me in Ottawa. One day, I traded him a case of beer for an old black and white TV. Then we decided to drink the beer and watch TV together. We've been good friends ever since, and we've never really been able to keep a low profile. That, that security person there was eyeballing us when they were... you never seen a freak before? <laughs> Well, she probably thinks we're checking out the cars here. <laughs> and we're just recording our, our conspiracy of crime while we do it. That's it. We're making a new fucking crime fucking show. How to steal a car. <laughs> As Jeff says, he's used to authority figures being suspicious of him. Actually, that's a hell of an understatement. Jeff's life has been fucked with by Canadian authority figures since the very start. When he was just eight months old, the government snatched Jeff and his siblings from their mom on the Curve Lake First Nation. They fostered them out to white families as part of the official colonial policy we now call the 60s scoop. Jeff's life has also been full of harassment by cops and prison stints, and he spent years negotiating with doctors, trying to find a safe, legal way to avoid dope sickness and pain. My body's a jigsaw puzzle. Like I've been on morphine for like 15 years. And after you start doing a few hundred mils of morphine and it's not doing shit, 
You know, you ask for alternatives, and they don't really have alternatives. So Jeff and I got creative. We used to do fentanyl before civilians even knew what that was. Jeff would buy fentanyl patches off the street, still new and in their packaging. And like everything else, we didn't always use as directed. Well, you put, put them down, take them up, chop them up a bit, stick some lemon juice in, or vitamin C, and off you go. And it did a hell of a lot more for me than the morphine. So since then, I've been trying to get it, and they keep saying, no, no, no. Over the years, Jeff and I kept trying to get on methadone, morphine, or whatever doctors would give us. When that didn't work, we'd use heroin. Or in a pinch, T's and R's. Tall one and Ritalin. That's the poor man's speedball with a flash of gasoline taste in the mouth before the drugs hit. By 2014, Jeff was on enough methadone and morphine to hold him. But it didn't last long. The government swapped out his methadone for methadose. That cough syrup crap. <laughs> yeah, so you got, that cherry you got garbage. That didn't do anything for me. So I just started getting more morphine. And that was back in, in 2015 when it was sort of like there was a big moral panic about people on pills, on oxys or on prescription, anything really. And so all over North America, they were cutting people off. And so you got cut off then too. Yeah. You know, that was the fastest crash and burn I've ever gone through. Yeah, I mean, I, I took a photo of your script because I was so shocked to see this, I mean, this um, steep taper from hundreds of mils of morphine to nothing in like two weeks, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I was supposed to go uh, get some exercise and go swimming. Jeff did not go swimming. Today, doctors call people like Jeff treatment refractory. That's when first and second line treatments just don't work out. The word refractory means stubborn or unmanageable. Jeff would probably wear that as a badge of honor, but I think it's a pretty fucked up way to think about somebody who's had their meds cut off. Still, that label is why nurses approached Jeff back in September. They wanted to tell him about something called fentanyl-assisted treatment. Yeah, the nurses uh, mentioned that they were thinking about trying it as an alternative to the street drugs and uh, Two different nurses said they would put the patch in and get me on it. And, and what was that like when they told you? Do you believe it was going to happen? No. <laughs> no, not at all. It's like anything down here. You hear all kinds of stories. Not many of them work. But they fucked me around for like three and a half weeks. Oh, do this, do this. Uh, we need blood tests. We need piss. And then, to Jeff's surprise, they say it's all sorted out. Show up on Monday and we'll give you some fentanyl. Are you told you have to be somewhere at some time or you just drop by whenever or? Well, I was there at nine as soon as they opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> Stick them on, you know, You've been waiting too long. And so they, they put one on each arm and one on, well, two on your patches. chest. Yeah. Four patches, right? They're 300s and a 50. So they just stuck them all over the place. I don't know, look kind of funny. Jeff pulls up his sleeve. The patches are covered up with what looks like saran wrap. It turns out this stuff is a transparent film called Tegaderm. The nurses have scribbled a signature and a date on it in what looks like Sharpie. Jeff could get kicked out of the program if he messes with it. So I don't get out of it. That's the bottom line. And so if you could fuck with it, what, what are they worried about you doing? They're worried about me fucking with it because lots of people scrape them off and fix them. Yeah. Everybody's used to shooting fentanyl. And this is, they, they want to give it to you through your skin, and they put this thing on it so you can't really tamper with it and shoot it. Like, is it going to work if you can't shoot yeah. it? It's like uh, muscling it, basically. You know, it's the same thing. It works, but it just takes fucking, it's a little bit different fucking ride. And it lasts longer in the muscle, too. Different ride, like less of a rush? Well, you won't get a rush from patches yeah. to start with, right? That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> This fentanyl-assisted treatment program is a tiny pilot. Only eight people in the city are on it. It's part of a patchwork system we have here in Vancouver that includes a small heroin clinic and a dilly program. These things really help people, but they all have long waiting lists. There's no question, we gotta scale them up. But we also need to be fighting for something more, for a safe supply, not just treatment. The difference is simple. Treatment is based on the disease model of addiction. It's all about fixing us, and maybe that means trying to get us to use a different drug, something that causes less euphoria. 
Maybe it means making us use a smaller dose, or taking a pill instead of shooting it. Maybe it means forcing us to go on some kind of therapy, or dogmatically monitoring whether we divert our drugs. Maybe it means threatening to kick us back to street drugs if we misbehave. A safe supply would be different. It would mean replacing our black market drugs with the closest pharmaceutical version. My friend Guy has a good line about this. The medical system really needs to meet us where we're at, but instead, we're meeting them where they're at. Can you feel the gap being closed? Like, can you feel it getting less? Like the well, gap between what you're on and what you need? Yeah, I feel a little better with it, the fentanyl, but it's got a little ways to go yet. Sometimes I'm, I feel like a bag of shit. They're doing something, but not quite enough. Like I said, I'm at 550. I think the maximum they go is six and a quarter, but I think they're gonna have to do better than that. Yeah, you're gonna top them out, eh? I think so. So, I don't know. There's hope, but they better hurry up. <laughs> and do you trust them, like the doctors? I ain't got much choice, do I? Jeff has all the reasons in the world to be skeptical of the program, any program really. But I can tell that he's hopeful, and that means a lot to me. It's been a long time since I've seen him like that. So like imagine um, that you get to this place of like no more dope sickness, like you don't gotta go score, it's just, it holds you. Then, <laughs> right, and, and what do you do? Like what, what do you do with your day or what happens with your life after that? Get back to having a life, fucking not having to fucking grind up money continuously. Well, I've been getting into mischief for a long time. Fucking, I can't go back to work, work. So I don't know. Maybe pottery or something. No. <laughs> no. I don't know. I'll figure something out. You're making radio with us. Yeah. So there's hope. Chapter 3, Wednesday, June 5th. If we want a safe supply, we're going to have to do it ourselves. We can't wait for governments to just change their mind. We have to fight for it. But that's easier said than done. Drug users can get shit done when we get together and organize. But alienation, stigma, and self-doubt too often hold us back. The first step is always just convincing ourselves that we matter. My name is Hugh Lampkin. I am the current vice president of Vandu. He was in his 50s. He's got short salt-and-pepper hair and a neatly trimmed beard. He's been active with Vandu for over a decade. For me, most of when I started using drugs, at seven I was abducted, you know, and at eight or nine I, I had another pedophile who uh, got his hands on me and, you know, it was pretty tough. I'm not saying no poor me, never have I ever used that as an excuse, but, you know, when I started using drugs, it, it, it enabled me to sort of relax um, forget about that, and I was able to cope. Hugh moved to Vancouver when he was in his 40s. He was in a rough place at that time. He's working a job that he didn't like, and he got fired. And he said he was having a really hard time trusting people. He still had a lot of unresolved trauma to work out from his childhood. <laughs> the straw that really did it for me was, um, I had a friend of mine, uh, and I've known him for like a long, long time. We grew up in the streets and T.O. together and, you know, been through a couple of things. And uh, so one day I, I just I just wanted to try something. I was, I was going to tell him, you know, just a couple of things what happened, you know, just because, you know, I've listened to him and we know we've talked back and forth and things. And then he stopped me and he goes, you know, man, I don't care what you got to say, just just show up for work. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I, I, I couldn't say anything. I was just blown away. That he would say that to me, cause, you know, and uh, that that really hurt me. That was the straw that did me in, and you know, after that, I just, you know, screw this, I'm out of here. And so Hugh decided he was going to check out, an intentional overdose. I remember my legs giving out, like getting really rubbery and giving out, and then you know, everything went black.
next thing I heard was these damn birds chirping outside my window. <laughs> and I, I was lying there, and I could hear the birds, and I'm going, it's impossible. And I remember opening my eyes and just lying there, and it was like they were getting louder and louder, and or more birds were coming, and I remember lying there and going, okay, I'm up, shut the hell up, stop singing, stop chirping, leave me alone. And as I said that, they stopped. Right? <laughs> and I got up and I walked to the balcony, opened it up, and a bunch of the birds flew away, and just, just one bird was left on the on the branch, and it sort of just looked at me and looked at it and just chirped and then flew away. <laughs> After the suicide attempt, Hugh doesn't know what to do. He survived, but now what? Nothing's really changed, so he just kind of continues with normal life. I don't know. I was just wandering around. Uh, I never, I didn't do anything, and I was just walking along um, Hastings, and I figured it was a nice day. I'm just going to walk and just, you know, just just walk. And as I was walking, I came upon Van Du. I didn't know it was Van Du at the time. There was a bunch of people outside, and they looked interesting to me, my sort of people, and I came in to find out what the place was about. He was curious about what actually happens here. And so he walks in and approaches the woman sitting behind the reception desk. And she told me the name, and I sarcastically said, oh, so you guys sit around and talk about different drugs, which are good? And she looked at me and said, no. And I said, you know, oh, okay. And then she explained what the place was about, and I, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And so Hugh starts going to Vandu meetings. One is held by a group called the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, or WARS. WARS does this thing called Where I'm From, where members of the group go around and tell their story. Hugh is asked if he wants to share, and he says, why not? So I'm up here, I'm up in the front, and there's about 30 people in the group, and I'm talking to the group. I was talking about my life and what happened to me as a, ki- as a child, all everything. I didn't leave anything out. First time. First time. And it, it very quickly dawns on me that nobody is doing anything I thought that people would do. And I was looking at, at people, and, you know, a lot of people were, like, shaking their heads, and I realized people were going, they were saying, yeah, and some people were, were, like, speaking and saying things pertaining to their lives, and a couple of people had tears in their eyes and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I felt something. And as I was looking and talking, I, I could see two layers. The, the top layer where I always looked was had a, sort of dark and hazed over. And then it was being lifted. And as it was lifted, I could see it was bright. And as it, it got brighter and brighter and brighter until, and that, like this weight that was sitting on me for all my life, you know, it was, I felt light as a feather. Lots of activists and organizers have had moments just like this. If you listen to our show this year, you've already heard some of their stories. It's a realization that you matter. Your life, your experiences, your suffering, your dreams. And once you realize that, you get angry. Angry at the hostility you've faced all your life. Angry at the way other drug users are treated. Angry at the inhumanity of the drug war. And angry about what's going on in places like Maple Ridge. Maple Ridge is just an hour's drive from the downtown east side. It's a suburban place where the war on drugs is more openly hostile. Now into its fifth year, the problems in Maple Ridge with drug addiction, crime, mental illness, and homeless encampments continues to drain city resources, anger ordinary residents, and reveal the widening divide between a municipal and provincial government. That sounds like the news, but it's from a video that the mayor of Maple Ridge uploaded to YouTube. It's a long interview with a PR agent. She introduces the mayor. Maple Ridge Mayor Mike Morden is on the front line in the battle of political wills. Elected in a landslide victory just a few months ago, he campaigned on a promise of putting an end to the city's illegal tent city, getting people the help they need to move forward in their lives, to restoring law and order, and to once again returning Maple Ridge into a safe, livable community for its citizens. Today, Mayor Morden tells the interviewer that, quote, Maple Ridge doesn't have a homeless problem, it has a drug problem, and he's going to fight about, it. About 80% of the population that's out there on our streets is addicted to fentanyl. And I see us becoming, uh, for some reason, a hotspot in the lower mainland for 
people coming here to carry on uh, doing drugs and basically raping and pillaging all of our community and our businesses, and that's got to stop. Maple Ridge's war on the poor has been going on for a while, since before Morden took office. A few years ago, the city closed down a homeless camp and stuck people into an abandoned mattress store. And then they closed it down, and people built a tent city called Anita Place. Now Morden wanted to close that down too. There's a common story from many low-income people in Anita Place and who have been homeless and low-income in this community a long time about being attacked in the street. This is Ivan Drury, a housing activist with the group Alliance Against Displacement. He's speaking at a rally in Maple Ridge earlier this year. Having bottles thrown at them, sandwiches, eggs, buckets of water in the winter. Local vigilantes are even known to shoot people from their cars with paintball guns. They seem to like to use frozen paintballs because it hurts more. Anita Place became an important sanctuary for people, particularly for drug users. They ran their own OPS in the camp. The residents watched over each other and stocked Narcan in case of overdose. They stored harm reduction supplies in the front room of this guy named Dwayne Martin's cabin. For a lot of people in Maple Ridge, even people who don't live in the camp, this was the only option. And in over two years, there had not been one fatal overdose in the camp. Um, it looked really good, very, very nice. Um, just just built. Um, the people there were, you know, decent people, you know, trying to get through life, but a lot of them used. And, you know, with the, with the fentanyl crisis on, a lot of people are, they, they want to use safely. They don't want to die, right? And regardless of what people say, I think people have the right, right to have that. This is what remains of our places, our belongings. Just after noon, police and fire officials moved in. My job is survival. Residents tried to defend their adopted homes, but to no avail. We're fighting the state of rat infested area here. This is what I'm fighting for. Campers took what they could carry and were directed to go to a new emergency shelter site a few blocks away. In March, police stormed Anita Place and forced people out of their homes. Drug users lost the one place in town they felt safe. A few weeks later, a man who used to come to Anita Place was found dead by an overdose in a ravine. His name was Jay. Right away, Anita Place residents and the Alliance Against Displacement came up with a plan. They're going to stand up to Mayor Morden in the city, and if necessary, they're even willing to get arrested. The residents call on Hugh and Van Du for help, because they know how to run an unsanctioned OPS. So we were going to just go there and set up the OPS outside, and man it and have, if people wanted to use it, we had people there who could, who could man it. On the morning of June 5th, Hugh and other members of Van Dude drove out to a provincially owned lot in front of a modular public housing complex in Maple Ridge. The activists brought a journalist and a lawyer. They had a pickup truck with plywood stacked in the bed. Someone had even mowed the lawn the night before. They were ready. We set up on the lawn outside, mm. a little tent. The group unloads the plywood and lays it on the freshly cut grass. They start hammering. I followed the action on Twitter. The sound of those hammers, fucking A. I can't tell you how invigorating it was. The activists were moving so fast. In almost no time, they had the tent set up. They put up a table and piled up the boxes of rigs. There was these ladies, um, oh, I forget what they were called, Mothers Against... Oh, Mom Stop the Harm. Yeah, Mom Stop it. Yeah, um, there was um, a couple of them that were there, and they were singing some tunes and stuff like that. After so many times, after such experience. So we were planning on doing that all day. Um, some people had made um, cakes, some treats and sweets. Put it, this chair in there. I was I was helping to man the um, the tent, mm -hmm. so when people came in, I would help them, give them some education around using if they if they ask for it, and just to make sure that they're safe and to get them things that they needed and to clean up afterwards they were finished and you know just just to help out basically. Thank you. Then, less than an hour into the action, the cops show up, and they surround the tent. They were telling us they're going to arrest us, and you know all this, all this kind of stuff, and we're breaking bylaw codes, and yada yada yada. 
You guys just show up all of a sudden and start building this? Call the province. Get the property owner's uh, direction before you take this down and threaten people's lives. Two guys come in to use the OPS, walking right past the cops. One flips them the bird on the way out. So then they taped off the road so people couldn't drive by and see what was going on. Yeah, that's really protecting the community. People who are trying to do something in their community to help save lives. Let's get priorities straight here. Um, about three weeks ago, we found out what was happening here. Bandu's always been behind communities and, and things of that nature for the help the poor drug users. And so our board decided to donate $4,400 to the cause here um, for you guys and your, and, um, your OPS site. And if you ever need anything, you give us a call here at Bandu. There's a standoff. The cops say that activists are trespassing, and they threaten to take away the tent and all the harm reduction supplies. It's a tough call, but activists decide to pack up so they can keep their supplies and fight another day. It's not a happy ending. For most people, there's still nowhere safe to use drugs in Maple Ridge. But I'm still inspired by what activists did. If you're a drug user, it's incredibly audacious to stand up for yourself, to go risk arrest to make the point, my life is worth something. And for their part, the residents and activists tell us they'll be back in 2020 to try again. Chapter 4, Wednesday, October 23rd. We're upstairs at Vandu with Crackdown editorial board member Simona Marsh and her dog, Ollie. He's a little brown pug with black face. He's a smart little monster sometimes. No, he's a really good dog. He's well-maintained and, you know, he's my little guy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Simona, um, the secretary of Vandu. Um, I take minutes during the, the meetings we have. If somebody gets louder, I type it up, you know, Secretary of TVs. I've known Simona for about five years. Today, she's wearing a biker jacket. But most days I see her, her style is all about Hello Kitty. When we told her we wanted to make an episode about 2019, she tells us it was a pretty good year. She says she recently got a gig at a conference. Her job was to help people from out of town connect to a safe supply of drugs. That was really important. We've lost people this way. In 2017, harm reduction activist Rafi Balian died at a conference out here. Really started implementing the Ethical Substance Use Navigator this year. And like, we talk about serious issues like decriminalizing, how we're going to stop all these people from dying from fentanyl overdose. Simona pets Ollie's head as he sleeps. It's funny just how different they are. Ollie barely moves. But Simona is zippy, especially if you catch her on her bike. I had a little GTM aggressor, which is like a little kid's mountain bike. It was neon green and black. It was nice, just my size. A few months ago, on Wednesday, October 23rd, Simona was riding her bike to work, just passing Save on Meats on Hastings Street. The road was all concrete on the sidewalk. It was all broken up. So my bike tire got caught in a groove and right at 58 West Hastings, my bike stopped and I didn't. When I was in the air, I knew it was like, oh. But, I mean, as soon as I hit, it was so weird because I didn't feel no pain, no nothing, right? It didn't hurt until I tried to go grab my phone. And, like, I couldn't stand up, so I was just pulling myself. And when I was pulling, my leg was just, like, staying there. Simona is lying on the sidewalk. She realizes that her kneecap isn't in the right place. She can't stand up at all. Somebody calls the ambulance. And while she's lying there, Simona sees one of her friends. Simona calls him over and asks if he can help her shoot up. I go to my buddy, hurry up and drug me. He's like, the ambulance is coming. I said, well, it's a damn good reason why you should hurry up. Because he couldn't do it after the ambulance got there. <laughs> and then I have to go there straight, right? Yeah. The ambulance came and asked me, do you do drugs? And I'm thinking, what kind of question is that anyways? I'm sitting here. Obviously, I can't move my leg. Something's wrong with my leg. What does me doing drugs have to do with price two in China? You know, like, just doesn't make sense. Simone's taken to the hospital and x-rayed. It turns out she'll need multiple surgeries. 
She's not going to be able to walk for months, and she has to stay at the hospital for a few weeks. Her friends bring Ollie around so that she won't feel so lonely. This would have been a bad day for anyone, but the bike accident put Simona into a genuinely terrifying situation. Like a lot of Vancouverites, Simona is trying to get by in the midst of a brutal housing crisis. At the time of the crash, Simona lived in an SRO, one of the last affordable rooms in the city. But like a lot of these places, it didn't have a working elevator, and she lived on the top floor. There's only stairs, right? Like, right off the bat, you have to walk up like a huge flight of stairs. So I couldn't do that. Yeah, what did that mean with your... That means I'm not staying in my room anymore. The social worker, she comes and she's like, well, you can go to triage, you can go to lookout, or you can go to the Yukon shelter. She's like, which would you prefer? I'm like, well, actually, I'd like to go stay in the bridge. She looks at me, she's like, Simona, you know, you just can't pick up a phone and get right into the bridge. That's not how that works. The bridge is a women's only shelter. Simona has friends who live there, and she knows residents get their own rooms. This is when I started to get really worried. Shelters can be a rough ride, and some would rather not stay there at all. A lot of us thought there was a real chance that Simona would end up on the street. So people started to make calls. It turned out that someone knew someone who could pull some strings, and so Simona was discharged from the hospital into the bridge. She says on the way out, the hospital gave her a rickety old wheelchair. A real piece of shit. The, the one wheel would, like, skip. Yeah, it was, it was like, yeah, no, no, no. So I wouldn't buy this. Where'd you buy this thing? Online. I'm not telling you how much, though, because it's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a rude question. Yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> could, de- could you describe it for people who, uh, who, who, I mean, obviously nobody can see what we're talking about. It looks kind of cool. What is, what is it? It's a Cobra, I think. I don't know. It's a scooter. Like an old man scooter. Simona gestures down at her silver Cobra. I guess it's the kind of thing that old people use. But Simona owns this shit with her biker jacket. You seem like you're like fairly good at backing it up and stuff. And like, <laughs> yeah. Are you learning the ropes? I say that to everybody whose feet I run over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting better. I just have to remember I have to turn it down to low. The first day I got it, this toggle, I don't know if I can do it, but it's like really touchy. Simona reaches down to the controls to show us what she means. The scooter lurches backwards faster than she expected. Her eyes get wide for a second as she almost pins our producer, Alex. Alex hugs the wall and steps back to the side, narrowly missing getting pancaked. He asked me to add that this all looked pretty graceful. I get this stupid, annoying. See, like that? You seem like you're being a good sport about it, but it must be a pain in the ass. It is a pain in the ass. I really hate not walking. You know, I really hate having to go all the way to the where there's a curb so I can go down instead of, you know, can't just run across the street anymore. Can't ride my bike. How long do you think you're going to be in the scooter before you can, like, uh, walk around again? I have another, probably, I think, another month before I can put any weight on it. And then we see if the surgery's worked. Simona's story says a lot about what life is like in Vancouver right now. Not just for drug users, but for everyone. It feels like this city is pushing us away. And we're just one bad spill from disaster. This is a place where you really need friends. People who can help you when you get into scrapes. And people to organize, scheme, and mourn with. 2019 was a year when nothing happened. Like, no big wins. But for many of our colleagues, friends, and family, for Sharice Kiwatin, it was a year where everything ended. In the dark days of December, I really feel their absence. That silence where their voice should be, it rings in my ears. And when I talk to you, I try not to be so bleak and defeated. Resistance needs hope, and you make me feel more hopeful. 2019 was when we started making this show, and now we have so many new friends in our lives. I'm not sure if other podcasts get so many kind tweets, DMs, and emails, but they've helped us when we feel low, and this gives us energy to keep fighting. And so, from everyone here at Crackdown, from Ryan, from the producers, and the editorial board, I want to wish you all a happy new year. Let's make 2020 a year when something happens. Something big. Safe supply. The crisis doesn't stop, and neither do we. Yeah, so um, this, is, uh, this is from my mom. This yes. is... Uh, this is more than this is, love. This is jam that she made. I know, I and, love it. And that's Christmas cake. I love her jam. And that cake, holy jeez, that's the last 
couple of days anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she says, Happy Christmas. To yes. You. I still got a little or something for Christmas. I got to do something because she's always sending me this gem and I love it. I sure, I sure. Can we put it on my bike today? Okay, I'll give you a fat. You want to hear a rap? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> we do. What's, what's, what's the word? Crackdown? Yeah, yeah crackdown. Okay, here we go. One second. I got a sick beat. Oh, nice. Yeah. C R A C K. Crack. Yeah. Favorite phrase, do you want rock? <laughs> Can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Oh. My name is uh, Rapper Dave. My name is Dave Cohen. I coincide with my life. This is my paradise. I got here with a paradise roll. Now, I crack down like this. Oh. Every now and then, I'll be your best friend. I won't pay no foe. And it's not all about the money. That don't go. It's about finding... Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can support us at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. Thank you this month to Nathan Crompton, Ivan Drury, Andrea Wu, Samara Mayer, and Andrew Ibsens. Crackdown is an official take-home naloxone site. We've trained over 150 people on Narcan in this year alone. This episode discusses suicide. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or know someone who is, you can reach out for help at crisisservicescanada.ca. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and... Sharice Kiwatton, R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown senior producer is Sam Fenn. Our producers are Alexander Kim, Lisa Hale, Polly Legier, and this month, Alex DeBoer. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil. He just started a new gig at Yale. Good luck, Ryan. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter, at Garth Mullins. Original score written and produced by Sam Fenn, Jacob Dryden, Kai Paulson, James Ash, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam, with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and with the support of our Patreon supporters. Follow us on Twitter at CrackdownPod. Our website is crackdownpod.com. New episodes drop on the last Wednesday of every month. Be safe and keep six. I got no pride, no sloth, no greed, and no envy. Those are evil type of sins that you're getting, see. But I just, man, I like to accept. And that's all about the love inside my heart. Off of the top, I will not stop. I run no nonfiction, and that's the truth. Thank you. That was really good, thank you. You have been listening to a Sided Media production. C-I-D-E-D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.